Hey everybody, today is Monday, August 5th. My name is Matt Fury, and this is The Rough Cut. All right, here we go again. Time to get this podcast thing happening once more. Thanks for coming back to The Rough Cut, or if this is your first time joining us. I hope you, uh, hope you have fun here, and I hope you're enjoying your summer, wherever you might be. Or if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, I hope you're enjoying your winter. Either way, I hope you're enjoying yourself. Editor Tom Cross joins us today. And this is a lot of fun because this came through from a listener request, which is really cool because I kind of had him on the schedule anyway. So that worked out for both of us. But this podcast is for you. And uh, if you have any requests, just like this other gentleman did, go to the companion website, theroughcutpod.com. There's a contact page on there and you can fill out uh, your feedback. You can tell me who you want to hear from, any specific questions you want to ask them. You can tell me if you like the show, if you don't like the show. It's your opportunity to let me know what you think. So don't hesitate to do that. There's even a way for you to leave a message. And if I use your message on the show, I'll send you something cool. As always, I don't know what it is, but it'll be, it'll be good. Trust me. Okay, Tom Cross. Uh, really surprising to think that it was only five years ago 2014 that he started making a name for himself with Whiplash. And Whiplash is one of those films I think that just snuck up on everybody. Nobody had any preconceived notions or knew what to expect because Tom and Damien Chazelle really weren't known commodities at the time. And Tom didn't disappoint from there. La La Land, obviously another big hit. And then First Man, you know, I opened the show today talking about enjoying your summer. Well, it was 50 years ago this summer that Neil Armstrong was the first man to land on the moon. And Tom's film First Man really just captures that story and captures the essence of Neil Armstrong to a degree that's just hard to explain. You really have to see it for yourself. And if you haven't seen it, I certainly encourage you to do so. It's out there on 4K UHD Blu-ray. And you can consider today's episode like one of those DVD commentaries. You actually get to hear from Tom about his experience on First Man, as well as some stories from him on breaking into the business. And I'll just let uh, Tom speak for himself. I think you're going to enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, editor Tom Cross. That was uh, it was a Moviola show. It was oh, really? uh, the thing I worked on, and it was like it ended up being, I think, a movie of the week. Um, but it was on film. This was like in the '90s. It was on film, and it was a Moviola show, and we were cutting on the uh, Concord New Horizons lot, which was an old lumber yard. And so, part of my job as as an unpaid apprentice editor was to sweep up all the sawdust from the rewind benches and uh, from my editor's room and stuff like that. There were two editors, a guy named Jim Mackey, really nice guy, showed me how to sink dailies um, for the first time. And the other editor was uncredited, and it was this older guy named Monty. And uh, I didn't know who it was. Very sweet guy, nice guy. And it turned out to be this director, Monty Hellman. He directed a couple movies that are cult classics, like Tulane Blacktop with uh, James Taylor, and Dennis Wilson, he directed um, a movie called Cockfighter with Warren Oates. He's amazing director. And I, coming out of film school and being a film lover, I loved his movies. And uh, so when I found out that this editor was doing a favor, he just came in as a favor to help out, I think, Julie Corman. And I found it was Monty Hellman. I just went bananas. And when he found out I was a fan, he was very sweet. And every so often he'd pull me into the editing room while he was doing something to show me something, show me a cut or, or give me advice. He'd say, he'd say, Tom, if you're ever, if you're ever directing something, you're ever directing a scene where someone's holding an animal, holding a dog, you know, shoot it this way. Don't shoot it this way. You know, he'd give me these sort of 
cautionary tales and you know bits of advice for my for my filming and editing uh, work, and it was it was really cool. It was a it was a funny place to work because, um, like I said, it was built on an old lumber yard, so the wood shop was right next to the editing rooms. The editing rooms had no doors. It, it was just pieces of burlap hanging down. That if you wanted to close the door, you'd undo a little sash and then pull the burlap down. And uh, we'd had these, you know, moviolas, so it was very noisy. And all these old um, Goldberg reels bent and uh, um, really had sort of seen, been through the wars, had seen a lot of action and, uh, and sawdust everywhere. So it was very common for me to come into the editing room and see my editor wearing an N95 mask. He'd be editing, feeding the moviola with an N95 mask. And there was one time I came in where it had rained and the ceiling in this old kind of lumberyard building where the editing rooms were leaked and it had rained on a a cut scene that Monty Hellman had up. He left on his bench the night before and it rained on the film and stuff like that. And while we were waiting for someone to, I don't know if they ever patched the holes in the ceilings, but with all the assistants were told from here on in, when we left for the night, cover the trim barrels with garbage bags. Let's talk a little bit about First Man. Hollywood filmmaking is filled with hyperbole and and people using words that probably don't apply. One of those words that comes up all the time is ambitious. Now, I think that word really does apply here. If you've seen the film, certainly you walk away going, wow, that was a really ambitious thing for them to take on. But even if you haven't seen it yet and you just hear about it, you're kind of knocked up like, wow, how are they going to really accomplish that? What I'd like to know is how this project first came to you, what Damien first said to you about it and what your initial reaction was to doing First Man. I was cutting La La Land with Damien. I think it was like maybe December 2015 at the time. Basically, it was the end of La La Land. And Damien came to me with the script and said, I think this is going to be my next project. And it was First Man based on the book by James Hansen. And it was to be written by, well, it was written by Josh Singer. So Damien gave me the script. I read it and it was an early draft. I thought it was amazing. And I was immediately excited by it. I mean, I was in La La Land world. I was in musical world, which was a fun place to be. But it was really exciting to think about his approach to the next movie because he talked about how it was going to be different from La La Land. La La Land had all these long takes and it was romantic and it was smooth and and slick and the cuts were very clean and precise in a certain way. And for this movie, he really wanted it to be visceral and he wanted it to be very raw. And he told me he was going to shoot it like a documentary. The shooting style was going to be cinema verite, and therefore the cutting was going to be very different from La La Land, very different even from Whiplash. There would be some fast-paced scenes, and there'd be these kind of action set pieces, but he really wanted them to feel brutal and raw, almost like a war movie. So that was really exciting, the way he pitched that to me. And then he gave me, a, as he does, he gave me a list of reference movies to look at for inspiration. And we would sometimes look at these things together. During pre-pro, he organized a lot of screenings where we would have a double bill of movies that his key department heads would all get together and watch. First in LA when we were still here, and then they would continue it in Atlanta. But we'd watch documentaries by the Maisels. We'd watch Robert Drew documentaries, Primary and Crisis, where the Verite camera follows around President Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy. We also watched things like Saving Private Ryan and United 93, All the President's Men. I mean, Ordinary People. The list was just deep 
And he always has a list of reference films. We had that on Whiplash, we had that on La La Land. As each movie goes on, the, the reference list seems to get longer and longer. But as a movie lover, that's really a lot of fun for me. A lot of these movies I've seen, I know well, but some of them I, I don't know as well. And it's great to kind of get into it. And the hope is to never try to copy those movies or replicate them, but it's always to find some sort of inspiration. And so I think a big part of what informed Damien in terms of the style of this movie was the NASA archival footage. So when Damien was researching this project with Josh Singer, the screenwriter, they uncovered all this NASA footage that they watched. And I think what struck Damien was how raw this footage was and how intimate it was, because a lot of the footage was shot actually by the astronauts in 16 millimeter. So I think immediately when he watched some of this footage, it felt very personal. It felt very uh, intimate. And also he recognized when they were in the capsules, some of this footage felt very claustrophobic. And I think all of those things inspired Damien to want to take that type of approach to filmmaking. You know, he's a big fan of 2001 A Space Odyssey and Interstellar and uh, other space movies. But he really wanted to be careful not to tread on what those movies did so well. So in the case of 2001, the ultimate space classic, it's very clean, it's modern, it's futuristic, it's space age. I think what Damien saw in these space capsules and, his, and in his research was that these crafts were more machine age than space age. It was all about these gauges that look like something out of a submarine or a tank. It was all about these rivets that are holding together these metal cans. And he really wanted to lean into that. And I think that also helped inform the analog lo-fi feel of the movie. You know, he wanted to shoot on film, which he did. He shot 1.7 million feet of film in several different formats. He shot on Super 16, 35, VistaVision, and IMAX. And that's something that we had to work with very carefully. I mean, they had a very strict plan of shooting that material. They knew that certain parts of the story would be in 16 millimeter. They knew that all the capsule stuff would be in 16 millimeter. But as we moved toward Texas and Houston mission control, a lot of that stuff would be in two perf 35. So uh, we'd still get a lot of grain. We'd still get a very raw sort of feeling, but it, it would have a little more resolution than, than 16 which he thought would be helpful for some of the wide shots. But all the while, he and Lena Sandgren, the cinematographer, really wanted to have a fly-in-the-wall feel for everything, whether you were in the capsule or whether you were in the Armstrong house. He wanted it to feel like you were a fly-in-the-wall. The pacing of this film, or of any film, obviously, is probably the biggest concern of the editor. You're dealing with a project here that takes place over a period of eight, nine years. And you're trying to encapsulate a lot of very important story elements within a framework of two plus hours. Right off the bat, you're dealing with the loss of Neil Armstrong's daughter. And as I was watching that, I was thinking, what kind of challenge did Tom face trying to tell this story? It's really just takes place over five minutes, I think, where he loses his daughter. Right. How challenging was that to do with still being faithful to what you really needed to do to tell that story? Well, with Damien's films, he always starts with a really strong script. So in the case of First Man, we had a beautiful script that was written by Josh Singer, which was chocked full of so many details and did cover a time period from 1961 through 69. It was a large swath of time filled with missions and family details and moments. And Damien and Josh really worked to get a lot of these moments into the story. But 
You know, in the editing room, what Damien and I always find is that what's perfect on the page often is very different when you commit it to film. And certainly we found that on Whiplash, which had a script that, no pun intended, was tight as a drum. I thought the script was really perfect. I loved it. And it had all the right emotional beats and all the right moments of lingering and pausing, but then all the great spectacular moments of rhythm and velocity. And But once you get the dailies, once performances inhabit these characters, once you get looks and eyes and reactions, you often find that less is more. And so... Just like on Whiplash and even on La La Land, we had to really find ways to tell the story more efficiently. And that was certainly the case on First Man. I think the big difference on First Man was that Damien knew that we would have a different sort of elasticity in terms of our storytelling in the editing room because of the Verite shooting. So he just knew that the way he would be shooting, capturing details and moments uh, in a documentary fashion was going to mean that we would have even more heavy lifting to do once we got into post. So the way Damien and Lena shot the film is um, even during the scripted scenes, they would choose to have a second camera, sometimes a third camera, that would just be grabbing little details, little off-screen moments. And often they're moments that are not fully planned. They're moments where the actors are doing things and just inhabiting the characters. And this is being captured by these other cameras. And Damien would look at his monitor and he would give instruction and give direction and tell them to grab these little details because he'd see some actors off screen doing something off screen to the A camera. And he knew that he would be collecting a lot of this footage that we wouldn't exactly know where it would go, but we'd have it to work with. The biggest thing was Damien shot two weeks of rehearsal footage with Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy and the kids the child actors that play their kids, you know, it was really important to Damien to get them comfortable with each other. He also wanted to get the kids used to the cameras because they had never been in front of the cameras before. So two weeks before principal photography started, he got them all together in fully dressed sets and full makeup and hair. And he sort of put them together and had them play house. That was footage shot on both primarily 16, but some 35. That was footage that Damien knew we'd probably use, but he didn't know exactly where. And in fact, he told me to look at it, take notes, organize it, make my selects, but don't bother cutting it. It's something that we'll kind of do together when he comes in. And that's that's what ended up happening. And a lot of that footage, we ended up cobbling together and building little domestic family moments from. We use a lot of that in, in, in First Man. And in fact, there are some moments, some scripted moments, family moments in First Man, which we ended up replacing with this rehearsal footage. And the rehearsal footage was completely improvised and unscripted. And so in a way, when I was going through a lot of this footage, it really was a lot like documentary. And I think the way Damien decided to shoot this film in the Cinema Verite style, documentary style, really kind of changed the way I look at footage. It changed the way that I select footage. And so I would start looking for things in the footage that um, on any other film, I, you know, I might discard or think wouldn't have a place in the film. You know, certain sort of camera movements or snap zooms, rack focuses, things that are kind of uh, hallmarks of certain verite films. Those are things that I started to have to kind of make room for in my selects roles. Those are things that I wouldn't 
use in La La Land, I wouldn't use in Whiplash. So it was a reminder to me that every piece of film is potentially useful. Every piece of film has value potentially. And the style that Damien wanted to do this in, the verite style, kind of reminded me of that. Well, it certainly speaks to how important it is for an editor to be organized and have a good system for like monitoring everything. Um, what is your approach to setting up a project and how you organize? Because every, every editor is different. You know, I was lucky on First Man to have an amazing crew, an amazing editorial crew. I had um, a couple additional editors, Harry Yoon and John Toe, helped share the creative workload. I had Jennifer Stelema and Derek Druin, who were my first assistants. I had a great VFX editor, Ryan Chavez, and later he was joined by Jody Rogers. So I definitely was not alone in this huge endeavor. They all were incredible in terms of organizing and helping organize all of the footage. Again, we had 1.7 million feet of film that my crew had to sort out and bring to us so that we'd have these things at our fingertips. A lot of the footage uh, was unscripted and improvised. There was an enormous amount of insert photography, windows, gauges, close-ups of switches and uh, joysticks. All of that footage was often slated for certain scenes, but were elements that we ended up using all over the movie in different places. And so we had to be able to call these up at a moment's notice. And you know that's what a good editorial crew will do. They will organize it in a way that in some cases even I don't understand, but they somehow can organize it so that I can have all the material at my fingertips. And there was a lot of material. So I work in frame mode in dailies. Um, I like to, I'm, I'm very visual, so I like to look at thumbnails instead of read descriptions. It's a little bit easier for me, but each person has their way of working, you know, but that's, that's my, those are my habits. My crew had to organize all of these insert shots into separate bins. So we had these massive bins that would just be called Gemini 8 inserts or Gemini 8 windows. And sometimes we would have the bins, we'd have different bins sorted in different uh, ways. So we'd have a bin that would say Gemini 8 inserts by scene. And then we'd have another bin that would say Gemini inserts by type, type of gauge. And we did the same thing for the Apollo missions as well. And so I think if it wasn't for finding creative ways to organize uh, the material, I think we'd still be editing the movie. Getting back to, to Whiplash and La La Land a little bit, you know, those obviously very, and you, you said this yourself, that you're in, you're in La La Land working on that when Damien brings you First Man, and your head's in this space where it's all about music, and certainly Whiplash, a lot about music. And then we get to First Man, and for most of it, it is a very quiet film. You never really notice any strong music cues or motifs until the lunar landing when it just overwhelms you, when that stuff right. really comes in full force. Right. Did that change anything for you as an editor or in your process that music didn't play such a strong or at least uh, overt role for most of the movie? Well, you know, it's interesting because with Damien's films, music is always a big part of it. And it was definitely a big part of it on Whiplash uh, in the big band sense and on La La Land with the big orchestral score and the musical part of it. You know, you can't escape it. Those two movies are music movies. With First Man, at a glance, it really seemed like it was going to be very different from those two movies. It felt like it was going to be a departure from Damien's musical obsessions. But in fact, we worked very closely. Damien and I worked very closely with Justin Hurwitz, the composer, 
on First Man, and we worked in the same manner that we did on La La Land. Justin had a room next to mine, and we shared a door, so he was in an adjoining room, and he started his music during pre-production. So by the time I started uh, assembling the movie and got into the editing with Damien, Justin had already created several melodies for First Man. He had already created a lot of the music um, that I could temp with. So unlike other movies where you often pilfer uh, other movie soundtracks to get what you need for your temp score, I was always temping with Justin Hurwitz's score. These were rough digital mock-ups of his score, not real instruments, but it was always his music. And so, in fact, we continued this kind of musical workflow that we had on La La Land. We continued that on First Man. And the interesting thing about working with Damien, because he's a musician, is that I work differently with music uh, with him than I do on other projects. The music really informs the cutting. So often, because Damien's a musician, he has a good idea of music edits that he wants to do or doesn't want to do, things that he thinks will sound good and or not sound good. So often we have to have Justin's score first in order to react to that, in order to cut to that. So because he was next door, we could get something from him very quickly. We could lay it down underneath picture and I could cut picture. And then we could give that scene back to Justin and have him refine what he did to better match my picture. But often we'd find that it would kind of cut both ways, so to speak. You know, he, he would make an adjustment, but then he'd want me to adjust picture to match. So we had a very fluid kind of uh, flow back and forth. And traditionally, music often follows picture. In fact, on other movies, you wait until you're locked or close to locked. Here, Justin was working alongside us, and it was more of a kind of a uh, a 50-50 relationship where we would kind of trade off back and forth picture sound, picture music. And so I would I would say that Justin's music informed the picture cutting to a large degree, informed it more than than it does, I think, on other pictures. How were you able to, to organize the mechanics of the handoffs for that? I mean, how were you connected and how did you literally pass this stuff back and forth? Well, Justin would pass things back through the assistants, sometimes through the music editor, Jason Reuter, it was done in a very efficient, but very laborious way. We weren't on the same platform, so it, it wasn't something that um, was instantaneous, but it was definitely something that we got used to doing because we, we cycled back constantly, more so than on other movies. So my assistants would turn over picture to him and he would score to that, and then he would end up giving a file back to the assistants, and it would come back to me, and they'd put it in underneath my picture. And they got pretty fast at doing that, because we did it, We seemed to do it all the time. So looking back at the three films, Whiplash, La La Land, and now First Man, are there certain things that you look at each of those films and go, I learned this on that film, or this changed my approach? Working on Whiplash, I learned this, or I really employed this technique that I've never used before something you can look back to and say, yeah, this, this is what I took away from that film. You know, every one of Damien's projects is a big learning experience for me. He loves the editing process. He's there with me the whole time. He pushes me to try things that I would not try otherwise. I think on Whiplash, you can never be too fast. We worked on things and got them to a certain speed and pace. And often we would continue to 
pace it up or we'd continue is almost like shrink wrapping. We just continue shrink wrapping and shrink wrapping until, until we felt the story was as tight as it could be. You know, on La La Land, it was a movie that was romantic and very languid and flowing. And on that movie, it was all about, in some cases, not cutting. How can we create an experience that's much more fluid and not about cuts at right angles? You want to really feel feel the camera moves, but feel them in a very gentle way. A lot of it had to do with finding solutions to story issues and finding ways to lift out things, but still be invisible, you know, and still be, still have it, have this kind of fluid feeling. On First Man, because of the cinema verite style and the documentary way that Damien wanted to shoot, it was about being open to finding value in all the footage you have. It was, again, a reminder that every piece of film, every camera rack, every little moment that might at a glance seem messy, it might actually have a place in your story. Every frame potentially has value. And so First Man was a really a reminder of that. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about the early days and how you got your start in the business. I know we, we talked a little bit about Roger Corman, but um, take us back and just uh, give us an idea of how things started off for you. Well, I grew up always loving movies. I love to go to the movies. And my mom was an artist and my dad was just kind of a movie lover. He just loved to go to movies. So between the two of them, they kind of encouraged my interest in movies. At an early age, my dad took me to the public library where they were showing a 16 millimeter print of the movie Wages of Fear. And I was under 10 years old and it was a film in French. I don't speak French. But the images spoke to me, and I saw this amazing epic story with these characters, and there was pathos, and there was intensity, and certain emotions that I could understand because of the cinematic storytelling. And I just got hooked on movies, and I remember seeing all the Star Wars movies when they came out, and all the Indiana Jones movies, James Bond movies. All these movies were exciting to me, and the movie theater was a place where I could just I could just escape and, and be in this place that I loved. And because of my dad being a movie lover and my mom being an artist, they encouraged that. And I went to film school at SUNY Purchase um, near New York City, and I studied film there. And after I graduated, I knew that I wanted to get into editing, even at that point, because I had done some editing in, in film school on 16 millimeter, and I loved it. And um, there was something I just found very inspiring about that process and very calming in a way. There seemed to be, at least at a glance, some kind of uh, a civil place that was an editing room and I wanted to be there. So I was able to, through the kindness of strangers and people who were very helpful, I was able to land a job as an assistant editor at a commercial editing company in New York. I had almost a chance meeting with an editor who let me use his name to get my foot in the door at this place. And he was a stranger. He wasn't, he was an editor who I, I didn't really know, but he agreed to kind of have a meeting with me, see me and give me advice because I was a kid fresh out of college and he let me pass his name on and that helped me get my foot in the door and I got a job at this commercial editing company. And that's kind of where I started. That's where I learned Avid. You know, Avid was pretty new at the time, you know, features were still cutting on film primarily. 
other genres like documentary. At that time, they couldn't afford Avid because Avid was very expensive at that time. And also the storage just wasn't there. You know, the, the image quality wasn't there yet. So in a way, nonlinear editing Avid was kind of perfect for short form, for commercials. And so the company I worked for had nine Avids, which at the time was a lot. And I kind of learned the ropes there. That's where I learned Avid. And then I longed to kind of move into feature films. I always longed to work in movies. So I left commercials and I pounded the pavement, tried to get on movies, and I ended up working in indie features as an assistant editor. And at some point, I got recommended to the editor, Tim Squires, who edits all of Ang Lee's movies. And he was in between feature films and he was editing some commercials. And someone recommended me because he was looking for an assistant editor who was versed in commercials. And so I ended up meeting Tim and I worked with him and assisted him on these commercials and we hit it off and he took me with him on his next movie and he got me into the union basically. Um, and that's how I kind of started my assistant editing feature career in New York. And I did that for a while until work got very slow. And I think when you work in New York, you end up taking any work that you can get. So you work in all sorts of different genres. So I worked in TV promos, documentary. I worked in fashion videos. I took whatever work I could get. But at some point, work got very slow. And I moved to Hollywood and eventually got back into the assistant editor feature track. And it's those connections that I made when I was an assistant editor, connections with producers and filmmakers. And, you know, those connections ended up being very helpful to me later on because it was it was a producer who I worked with as an assistant who ended up recommending me for the Whiplash short film. There was a producer named Cooper Samuelson who I worked with before as an assistant editor. And he was a producer trying to get Whiplash, the feature film, off the ground. But no one would give him money because no one wanted to see a movie about a jazz drummer. So Cooper um, and his producing partner, Helen Esterbrook, had this great idea to take 20 pages out of the feature script, get a crew together, get some actors together, film it. And then they'd have like a little sizzle reel that they could show to financiers and get them interested in the movie. So Cooper sent me the script and said, we've got very little money, but we think you're great. Are you interested in doing this little piece? And it, it was so small, they didn't even call it a short film at that time. We're just going to do this little proof of concept. And uh, I read the script and it was one of the best scripts I had ever read, the feature script to Whiplash. And I said, I'd love to meet the director. And uh, Cooper hooked us up and I, I had coffee with Damien Chazelle. And we just found that we loved a lot of the same movies. And we started talking about editing and started talking about movies and scenes where filmmakers had put frames in, like flash frames to give some type of impact, or they would sometimes do the opposite where they take frames out so that you would feel a cut or feel some sort of motion or impact. And since we were talking about frames, like it felt like, okay, this guy's really, he's into the minutia, he's into editing. We were kind of speaking the same language. So we did the short film together, which was an amazing experience and a lot of fun. And then the financing came through for the feature film version, Whiplash, and he asked me to do it. And I think the financiers were initially very hesitant about having me cut the feature film version of Whiplash because I had only a couple small features on my resume and they, they weren't very big. And I think they were just worried. So with Damien's support and with the producer's support, they kind of pushed and, and let me do it. I think they basically 
backstop me with a with a bigger name editor and and promise the financier that don't worry if Tom screws this up we can we'll just bring in this guy who is you know a real editor and uh, luckily it never came to that so you know the truth is I told I told my assistant editors when we started I said here's the good news guys the schedule is so tight for Whiplash it's we have so little time that I don't actually think there's time for them to fire us so I think we're good. <laughs> So now that you are, in fact, a real editor, when people come up to you that are just starting out, and I know that they do, and they say, you know, Mr. Cross, I, I just graduated film school or I'm in film school or I just I love movies and I want to be an editor. What kind of advice do you give them? When I meet young editors and aspiring editors and filmmakers, I tell them to never give up. Always try to do what you love. If you really want to cut, try to cut all the time. You know, even if you have to take an assistant job, even if that's what you do. Uh, for your work, for your living. Try to cut on the side, cut small projects. The toughest part about getting out of school or even not being in film school is often that you feel like you have to pay your dues. And to a certain extent, people will make you pay your dues. But there also is another way of looking at it, and that is that you sometimes will be given opportunities that other people will not be given. You know, when I was up for the Whiplash short film, I got a phone call because someone thought I would be good at editing, but mainly because I was cheap, mainly because they couldn't afford the better editors, you know. So I think that's the thing to remember based on my own experience is that as a young aspiring editor, you might think that you can't compete because there are so many other editors who are much more talented, much more experienced, much more well-known. But the truth is you might be exactly what they're looking for. And I know that from my own experience that had people known the type of film that Whiplash was going to be, had they known how brilliant Damien Chazelle truly is, I think that they would have leapt at this opportunity to cut this short version of Whiplash. But no one really knew. And that's because it was under the radar and because that you don't know. And so I tell people to be open to all opportunities and try to... As best you can, try to try to keep your living expenses down. Try to keep your overhead low. Um, you know, the great editor Sally Menke used to give advice about that. I read an interview with her where she said, "Try try to keep your overhead low because you never know that that freebie project you do could be your reservoir dogs." And so I try to remind people that often the opportunities that don't seem like they're going to amount to anything actually end up being your big break. Whether it's because you were cheap or because they saw the potential in you, I'm thrilled that, that you had the chance to do that and, and to build a career that you've built. Uh, I'm a huge fan of all your work, as you know, and uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks so much, man. Pleasure. I'm very, very lucky. That's how I got my big break. I, I, just, I just got lucky. Lucky? I don't know about lucky, Tom, but uh, well, let's say this. Lucky can get you in the door, but it's not going to keep you there, and it's probably not going to win you an Oscar either. Uh, Tom's an amazing editor. One I'm very happy to have spent some time with and talked to. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you got any suggestions, any feedback, let me know. TheRoughCutPod.com I'll do my usual reminder that if you want to use the same tools that Tom uses to cut his films, Media Composer First is out there. It's free. Just sign up and download it. Learn it. Know it. Live it. And even Media Composer itself, real affordable. Everyone thinks Media Composer is so expensive. It's not. So take a look into Media Composer as well. I should also give one more shout out to my friends at StockMusic.com that helped me out with the music for this podcast. If you've got a podcast that you want to do or a film that you're editing or a show that you're doing, check out stockmusic.com because I'm sure they have something there that can help you out. 
Okay, that'll do it for this edition of The Rough Cut. My name is Matt Fury, and I'll see you back here again real soon.